Welcome to the Bailu Podcast. Please note the information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Nick Burgess. Today we're having a detailed discussion on the banking sector. Um, now, the banking sector is important because it's 15% of the Australian stock market, roughly, but also because it's the lifeblood of the economy. So we're going to be checking in on the latest updates. Um, we've just come through reporting season. We're going to see how the banks are navigating the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to have a look at the outlook and where our preferences lie. Um, in order to do that, we need our banking analyst, Nick Cayley. He is with us on the podcast now. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Um, so we've just been through a bank's reporting season, um, as I mentioned. In general terms, how was it for the banks? It was tough. Uh, and it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, I suppose I should start out by saying the banks that reported interim results were those with the March-September balance date, so ANZ, uh, NAB and Westpac. Uh, CBA, who has a June balance date, put out a, a quarterly update. But it, it was it was tough, and it was tough because it's it's really a game of assessing the future at the moment because the 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 trading results at, at March don't reflect the outlook, which is what the banks have to take account of in their bad debt provisioning, and they're all really guessing based on what they're currently seeing as to what the impact is going to be uh, from the combined effect of the economic downturn, the, the ultimate cessation of the JobKeeper program, and how long their customers stay on uh, on loan holidays. And it's, I think that's a really tough ex exercise. So the real key focuses of the reporting season were on bad debt impairment charges and also capital. Okay. So we've talked before to people who've listened to this or regular listeners, listeners to this podcast, we like to pull things apart um, and then put them back together really from a shareholder perspective. So let's do that with the banks. You have previously talked about the four broad areas of uh, focus or the four key drivers of, of, of banks' uh, returns to shareholders. So one is what the sector is doing, two is revenue, three is costs and four is capital and you add all of that up and you come to a conclusion for profits and dividends. So let's do the same thing. One is, uh, number one is from the sector perspective. So what is uh, loan growth doing and the overall um, performance of the sector? It's flat <laughs> and it's been flat for, it didn't need COVID-19 to be flat. It's It's been flat for quite a number of uh, periods now. Uh, so most, most banks came in with pretty much flat lo loan growth. The outlier was ANZ, which came in at 7% annualised for the half. But housing growth across the sector, mortgage growth, was was pretty non-existent. ANZ's growth was really driven by uh, the drawdown of undrawn commitments by business, probably keen to get ahead of the curve on liquidity, uh, given the outlook. So the revenue that we talk about for banks comes in two forms. One is the net interest margin, the difference between what they um, pay uh, deposit holders versus what they lend money at. Uh, and two is non-interest income. What were the key trends across reporting season for those two drivers? So net interest margins, they, the banks did pretty well to hold the line there, uh, despite the series of rate cuts in 2019. Uh, so they've, they've really been able to hold the line through loan and deposit repricing. The only issue is that the, the results of the, the interim, uh, comp the companies that reported interim results at in March 
probably didn't have a lot to do with the last 25 basis point rate cut by the RBA, whereas CBA, uh, their quarterly probably was more reflective of that in isolation. But generally, they've held the line, but it but it could be a second half story for most banks in terms of the impact of that last rate cut. In terms of non-interest income, it's going down. And that's, that's just a general trend that would have happened anyway. Uh, it's really a factor of two, two outcomes there. One is uh, reduced activity. So reduced lending means you, 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 you get less fees on, on loan applications. And secondly, you're seeing the outworkings of the Hain Royal Commission in terms of uh, fees for no service. So a lot of those fees are now coming out of the, the P&L. So the non-interest fees are basically all of those sundry fees that doesn't right. include your, your regular mortgage payments. It accounts for about 20% of a bank's revenue. Okay. So overall, pretty stable, not net interest income, but elsewhere, um, some softness in uh, in non-interest income. Yeah, I'd have to say it's COVID-19 or not, it's pretty unremarkable and is pretty consistent with recent periods. Yeah. Okay. So on the cost side of the equation, there's obviously bad debts and provisioning for bad debts, and then there's the normal operating expenditure. So let's deal with sort of the non bad debt operating expenditure, what were the trends like for the banks over reporting season? If, if you take out the residual remediation costs from the, the Royal Hain Commission and also Westpac's provision of $900 million for Austrac, you'd have to say they were generally flat uh, across the board, So, which is a reasonable achievement. I think the interesting thing going forward is that COVID-19 is, is well, the anecdotal evidence is that COVID-19 is, is resulting in a, a pretty uh, generational change in customers right across the age spectrum adopting digital banking. And I, I don't expect that to go away after uh, we get through whatever we're going to go through over the next few months. So I think this is a permanent change that could down the track be reflective of how they can rationalise branch networks. So that is operating expenditure. Um, so bad debts, we've previously talked about bad debts, and I guess the point here is that they banks raise provisions ahead of actually incurring bad debts. Um, we've been through the reporting season, so we now know where each of the banks sit in terms of their level of provisioning. Um, so what's your reflections on that? A uh, bit of a mixed bag, really, and as you say, they have to. The accounting standards require them to take uh, account of what's likely to happen rather than what's happened. Because if you actually have a look at the the banks, their level of impaired debt relative to the size of their book or their past due loans, which haven't been impaired yet, they're actually pretty stable, half on half. So we're really not seeing that distress yet. But they've all had to sit down and have a good hard think about the next six months or the next 12 months, and uh, they've all pushed through some some enormous increases in bad debt provisioning. Uh, and I can give you the examples of, uh, so in the first half of 20, and I'll include CBA in this analysis, if you look at the basis points of bad debt provisioning relative to their gross loan books, ANZ went from 14 basis points in the last half to 55, CBA 17 to 80, NAB 16 to 38 and Westpac 13 to 62. Uh, it mightn't sound much, but uh, you're talking about billions of dollars of loan books here. So 
uh, I think that's it's it's been a reasonable stab in the dark for most of them because it's there's a lot of modelling involved and a lot of uncertainties. So as a shareholder, though, um, what is your preference? Do you want to be have exposure to the bank that is most conservatively um, provisioned, i.e. has the highest level of provisions, or how, how should shareholders look at this? I think it's a matter of saying, do I believe this will be a V-shaped recovery there will for we've got four reasonably generic banks and we'll punt the ones that that uh, come through uh, that are cheapest at the moment, or we say this is going to be a, a very long and sustained financial impact, therefore we go for those banks that are best capitalised and best provisioned for, for loan losses. In that respect, if we, look at, if we look at provisioning levels at the moment, and I'll... Yeah, uh, this is not the bad debt expense from the last half, but where they sit at, at the end of March is that um, uh, if you look at their collective provisions, so they're, they're loan loss provisions that aren't against specific loans yet, and this includes what they call their overlay for COVID-19, um, Westpac and CBA see, clearly stand at the top of the tree, 1.4% of provisions to their total risk-weighted assets or their balance sheet. Uh, compared to NAB and C and ANZ, which are back at 1.2, which I think is a little bit counterintuitive given that NAB and ANZ are probably your SME banks, that, which is where the general view is that the, the, the downturn will be felt the hardest. But certainly from a, a capital preservation view, you'd have to say CBA and Westpac uh, as residential mortgage banks come through this, this provisioning exercise looking pretty well. And just in terms of timing, what's the, what's the key timeframes here in terms of you know, working out whether this level of provisioning is appropriate, is too conservative, is not conservative enough um, as you know, lockdown um, unwinds across Australia? You know, how long is it going to take before we get clarity on some of these matters? Yeah, it, 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 it's probably going to be a first half 21, financial 21 story, because uh, for the balance of this fiscal year, for the banks generally, uh, JobKeeper is probably going to be in place at its current level. And, you know, we're hearing from the banks that we, we have through uh, talking anecdotally that um, whereas initially they were rushed for loan holidays, once the subsequent announcer of the job keeper actually meant that a lot of those loan holiday applications were withdrawn. So um, I guess the other important point from a shareholder perspective is the capital. So um, have all the, all of the banks have raised equity through uh, the last uh, few weeks? Uh, no, just uh, NAB and we had Westpac's raising last last week. It was seen as uh, NAB's raising of three and a half billion. They reported two weeks early and uh, they were seen as very opportunistic that they 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 realized they needed capital and they thought they'd just grab it first um, so it put the other banks in a little bit of a bind in terms of their ability to raise capital which I think subsequently impacted on the, the dividends as much as cautionary statements from the regulator so the logic given that share prices are depressed of raising capital I mean we've seen a journey of the banks since the GFC to become you know unquestionably strong and they had a lot more capital going into this crisis than they did the GFC but I guess the point of having the strength and capital position is so that you make it through this period and yet two of the banks have chosen to raise capital so the logic on that does that mean that they are expecting things to get uh, worse or that is this something that's 
sort of in a roundabout way being um, enforced upon them by the regulators? No, I don't necessarily agree it's being forced on the regulators. I just think it's up to each individual bank's view. I mean, interesting, NAB was, after Westpac's raising, notwithstanding their Austrac provisions, NAB was seen as the, the new capital laggard of the industry. So, and I think that was weighing on its share price. Uh, but, but I, I think they're just, I mean, we've seen this across the industrial market as much as the financials. That's Companies true. raising capital when when you would scratch your head and say, gee, the, the gearing looks modest. Yeah. Um, and so in your view, do CBA or ANZ need to raise capital? No, I, I think uh, it's a little bit complicated to work this through because there's been capital raisings and divestments which affect the ratios that were reported at, at at March. But if you take 10 and a half as the unquestionably strong uh, tier one capital uh, that they have to meet, CBA, uh, which did a, uh, which took a, took a, a very conservative view on its provisioning, uh, decided to sell 55% of colonial first state for 1.7 billion. So whereas they would have produced a a capital raising in the a capital ratio in the high ten percent range, they're now going to be about eleven point two. Whilst NAB is at eleven point two post its raising, it's still got to deduct the first half dividend. It was one of the few banks that paid a dividend or declared a dividend, so that'll bring it back to the high tens. And ANZ and Westpac at ten point seven, ten point eight. Uh, yet to deduct a dividend from theirs because they deferred their dividends in line with the, the cautionary statements on dividends from the regulator. So through this, I think the, the, the sum total is that CBA has went into it with capital superiority and has come out with capital superiority. Yeah. And so each of the individual banks are taking a slightly different approach to conserving their capital between dividends, raising um, and divestments in the case of um, CBA and Colonial First State. That's correct. Uh, okay, so sum it all up for us. Um, you know, how was reporting season for the banks, and what is now your sector preference for banking exposure? Okay, so a sector order of preference, and we're going on a valuation basis here rather than uh, we're we're calling out that we'll see this through and uh, on valuation our. our our sector preference is Westpac, ANZ and National Australia Bank and CBA, even though we probably think it's the, the quality and premium play, uh, we've got that as our last pick. But uh, um, if we had to do this on strictly capital preservation grounds, we'd certainly be having Westpac and CBA at the top of the tree uh, because of their capital position. The Austrac thing looks to have been sort of resolved for Westpac. Uh, fingers crossed, uh, and they just they just look the best capitalised at the moment, so and best provisioned. Okay, so let's run through just a little bit of valuation work for those who like uh, numbers. There's three main valuation metrics that we use for the banks. One is their um, dividend yield, two is their price to earnings ratio, and three is their uh, price to um, NTA. Uh, levels. So how do the banks compare on each of those three metrics? Well, I'll, I'll actually start with the price to earnings ratio. We're now at sort of a major bank sector average of 10 times perspective. That compares to a 20-year average of 12.2. And in the GFC, they touch around nine times. Um, and in, in a, as a relative to the market, uh, they're at about 66% compared to a long-term average of 73 percent and during the GFC 60 percent so probably about where you think they would be at the moment 
Uh, it's interesting, though, the, the ratings of the stocks have di- diverged despite the the operating models of the banks converging. So you've still got CBA at a 20% premium to the majors, w- Westpac at probably parity, and ANZ and NAB at 15% discount, which is hence the value equation. But um, that brings you down to yield, which on, on consensus forecasts, they're yielding just over 5% perspective at the moment versus a long-term average of 65 The big question is whether the, the earnings in this equation are correct. And that's 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 a big if at the moment. Um, the, as I said, the challenge will be what happens when the keeper finishes, and uh, uh, so that earnings will dictate dividends. Uh, but certainly, you know, we're, we're not we're not cancelling the dividends uh, for NAB and ANZ, even though they've been deferred. Sorry, Westpac and ANZ, even though they've been deferred. Uh, but we would expect the subsequent payments to be at a significantly reduced amounts to previous periods. And just the price to NTA for people who like to look at price to book and NTA, those yeah, sorts of things. So price to book, uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I've, I've got uh, CBA and we've had to adjust these for the raisings and, and divestments. Uh, we've got CBA currently on about a 30% premium to its book value and the others anywhere ranging from 20 to 45% discount to book value in the case of ANZ. Um, you know, similar, there's similar... Uh, metrics in terms of the comparison to NTA in that equation, but certainly by historical standards, if the numbers are right, you'd say that they look extremely cheap. Yeah. Okay. So to sum up from your perspective, um, and I want to get your thoughts on Macquarie Bank, but just in terms of the, the majors, so CBA and Westpac are the most conservatively po- um, positioned. Uh, Westpac, NAB and ANZ offer the most value in terms of dividend yield and discount. So um, I guess from that perspective, uh, or from our perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, Westpac is uh, one of the discounted banks and uh, conservatively provisioned, and that's why it's sort of at the top of correct. our tree and in terms the, of sector preference. The, the, the only caveat there is they've provided $900 million for the Austrac liability. Uh, I, we presume they've, they've done that with very good estimation and diligence in mind in the way they've formulated that number. And we we pray, or shareholders pray, that that's it doesn't come in a lot higher than that. Okay. And lastly, just on uh, Macquarie Group, how was their? Um, so what what have they a, just reported? Yeah, it was a full year result. Yep. Um, a little bit unusual in terms of the timing, but um, it was interesting. They came in with an eight percent decline in profit, which was consistent with their guidance that they said that. Uh, uh, that uh, FY20 would be down on FY19. Now, you got to remember that FY19 was a banner year for them that had a lot of asset realisations of quite considerable size. But uh, So they'd never withdrawn guidance, unlike most other companies in the market. What was fascinating about that is that uh, they finished down versus last year, largely because they, their banking operations took a, a very sizable increase in provisions because of COVID-19. So actually, if you put that back, they're actually pretty much at parity or normally ahead of FY19. And it really showed the the resilience of their earning model. Again, it was like two or three divisions up, two to three divisions down, and it all added up to, to a very solid set of numbers. But I think the most thing about Macquarie uh, is that uh, the outlook statement, even though they're cautious around not giving guidance for FY21, uh, the CEO has stated that they view 
this market now is a great opportunity. Uh, they've identified about 20 billion in surplus funds in, in, in structured investments where they can go after infrastructure assets that may be impaired. And also they see themselves as well capitalised to uh, take advantage of any acquisitions that pop up in the in the asset management game globally to either give them new geographies or deeper geographies or other other competencies and they believe they can do that at incremental cost. Okay, Nick Kelly there with his thoughts on the major banking sector and Macquarie Group in Australia. Um, now, I should remind uh, everyone that this, uh, the ELNC Bailey podcast, is now available on all the major podcast platforms, particularly those on your smartphone. So please go to your podcast app and search for Bailey. If you haven't subscribed um, already, subscribe or follow us to make sure you're kept up to date with our thoughts. Um, And also, if you found what we've been talking about uh, today informative and interesting, please tell your family or friends to look us up as well and help us spread the word of this podcast. Um, Lastly, if you're interested in talking more about your financial situation and the sorts of services that ELNC Bailu can help you with, please go to our webpage, bailu.com.au, B-A-I-L-L-I-E-U.com.au. Have a look around at our podcasts, some of our videos, some of our research is there, the services that we can provide you. Um, Under the Contact Us tab, you can go to the Start a Conversation section, fill out your details if you'd like to speak to an ELNC Bailey advisor, that is, if you do not have one um, already. That's it for this episode. Nick Cayley, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to The Value Podcast. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. You should not rely on general advice without making your own inquiries or your own assessments about the suitability of the financial products or services mentioned.